Good morning and welcome. My name is Raina Wells. I'm Director of Business Affairs and Research at Ontario Media Development Corporation. I want to thank you all for coming out this morning and also to thank our panelists, Diane Davey, Lisa Lyons-Johnston, and Sandy Lee uh, for taking the time to be here at our third Digital Dialogue Breakfast of 2014 to share their insights with us. I'm sure that many of you know OMDC, but for those of you who don't know us, we are an agency of the Government of Ontario, and our mandate is to build Ontario's creative economy through a range of innovative programs and funding and tax credits for the book and magazine publishing, film and television, music, and interactive digital media industries. This morning's session is Labour Market Issues and Insights. I'm very pleased to have Diane Davey as our moderator this morning. Diane is an expert in this area. Diane has more than 25 years' experience in the creative media industries. She's president of Castledale, a well-respected consulting firm that specializes in the business side of the cultural industries. Before founding Castledale, Diane was president of Key Porter Books, president of Next Media, a marketing and consulting company specializing in the entertainment and communications industries. She was president and publisher of Owl Books and publisher of the Owl family of magazines, which are a particular favorite in my house. Diane is, in her spare time, now also part-time executive director of Work and Culture, and it's that hat that she's wearing this morning. Work and Culture is a nonprofit organization that specializes in providing business skills, training, and resources for the arts and cultural media industries in Ontario. They have a website full of terrific training and HR resources. If you haven't been to the website, I'd highly recommend it. It's definitely worth a visit. Work and Culture recently released a report called Labor Market Insights in Ontario's Cultural Industries. And the study is uh, going to form the framework of this morning's discussion, but I'm going to let Diane tell you more about that. Please join me now in welcoming Diane Davey, Lisa Lyons-Johnston, and Sandy Lee. Thank you very much, Raina, and uh, for uh, saving me some time by giving the working culture uh, sort of overview. Our focus is business skills training and lifelong career development, and one of the things that we do in addition to the job board is research, and this is, this is uh, uh, one of the papers, the most recent paper that we've done. And just a little framework for um, what the study was before I introduce my wonderful uh, co-panelists. Uh, it was very intentionally a practical, timely exercise. It was done as a pilot. Our whole Hope is that over time, if we can find the resources, that we will do it again so that we begin to build up uh, a picture of what's happening across the sector. Uh, and uh, it was, uh, we engaged Nordic the Nordicity Group to do it, uh, uh, and we were very pleased with the outcome. Uh, we wanted it to be cross-sectoral because that's really where working culture um, uh, operates. We try to do things that are common and critical to the, uh, to the sector. Um, so um, it, that's kind of the framework. And I'm here today with two wonderful, very smart, if I can even say wise women, Lisa Lyons-Johnson, who is the president of Kids Can Press, which is a member of the Chorus Entertainment family, and Sandy Lee, who's the director of Human Resources at the Toronto International Film Festival, and Full Confession, also on the board of uh, Working Culture. Um, the, um, the, the context was to provide people with, uh, to pe people operating in the sector often who aren't HR professionals. Um, we, uh, we tend to be a sector that is largely dominated by smaller and mid-sized organizations, and you have to be a, uh, a certain size, uh, a sort of a TIFF size to warrant having a professional HR person. Uh, so we were trying to look at it from the point of view of practicality for uh, people, whether they were a little larger and had the uh, ability to have professional input, or people who are doing it by the seat of the pants, and that would be people like me. Uh, we, uh, we highlighted uh, five key areas, and they were recruitment practices, salaries, non-salary benefits, a huge part of what we offer, uh, and growth in recent hires and succession planning. 
Uh, and I'm going to, I'm going to focus on, on, on one highlight uh, right off the, the, the top, just to kind of get it out there um, so that we don't spend the entire uh, hour talking about it, and that's salaries. The, um, which is an area that interests all of us because uh, we tend to be, our sector tends to pay slightly lower than, uh, than the, the, four pro the, the other sectors, the business sector, shall we say. Uh, and um, our range that we found uh, is, is in the report. Uh, we did a low range and a high range, and our, we tested the results of the survey that we did with round tables and concluded that probably the survey results, the low end was a bit high and the high end was a bit low. But if you're really focusing on salaries, you can find the range in the, uh, in the report and just to, to, to know that the, there are some tensions on either end of it. Okay, uh, also in my final just sort of overview is one of the conclusions is that we don't have a strong community of HR uh, discussion. The mere fact that we've got all of you together is, I think, a really nice outcome and might be um, one of the things that we try to carry forward. How do we continue this discussion over time? How do we continue to collect this information so that we're beginning to build up a database? So that's kind of the background to the research, uh, the why and the what. And uh, now let's get into some of the guts of it and the, the, uh, the, um, the humanity of it. Um, I'm going to ask uh, both Lisa and Sandy uh, to give us some insight into how they're, they're coping with hiring, training, motivating in what we all know is a rapidly changing landscape. And I'm going to turn it over to Lisa first and then we'll move on to Sandy. Lisa. Thank you. Good morning, everyone. I'm delighted to be here with you. Um, we can maybe uh, put up my slides to start with. Um, our philosophy is to hire tough and manage easy. And what that means is to be very rigorous at the outset about the hiring process. Uh, we're required to have a minimum of four people uh, interview the prospective person. Just to give you some context, so Kids Camp Press is about 25 people within the larger chorus organizations. I am not an HR professional. I have a terrific HR team up in chorus that we tap a lot, but obviously within publishing, um, there are certain uh, approaches that we have that are unique to ourselves. But I can't say enough about the time spent at the front end will really reap your rewards in the back end. And uh, part of the four people meeting everyone, and it should be people at all levels. Katie Taylor, formerly of uh, the Four Seasons, is noted as saying that even the janitors had four interviews at Four Seasons before they were hired. So take the time, make sure you've got the right fit out the front because it'll save you a lot of heartache and money at the back end. So more particularly, what are we looking for? Uh, we're looking for alignment with our values of teamwork, knowledge, innovation, accountability, and initiative. And that's the first thing people need to know about us when they say, what is your culture? That's what describes us. We really want people who are ambitious, who want to hit the ground running and make a difference. Um, integrity is incredibly important to us. And you'll notice that we have skills last. And that's on purpose, because you can teach people a whole lot of things, but if they're not a fit, it's not going to work for either of you. So beyond that, these days, what I'm really looking for in people is um, ability to deal with ambiguity, ability to juggle a lot of balls, comfort with change, comfort in taking risks, and the ability to innovate. So that's what I'll start off with. Um, I'm really lucky because Lisa put together this beautiful and colorful slide, and I'm so happy that you're all here wanting to talk about HR practices at 9 o'clock in the morning. That's <laughs> fantastic. And uh, so, so I'm actually going to piggyback off this because we have a very similar philosophy at, at TIFF, and I did want to spend some time talking today about how important it is to make sure that you're aligning your values in your recruitment process. And that really... For, for those of you who have, who have HR in your laps because you don't have an HR professional in the organization who's doing it, really trying to build those practices in from the top will make it feel less onerous and will give you the quality and value that you're looking for when you're bringing on staff. And 
values are very important. And I'm, I'm so glad Lisa touched on the skills at, at the bottom because skills can be taught. It's hiring for character that, that can't be. And we also have a very structured recruitment process at TIFF where we also hire by committee. And we also make sure, I, I know that one of the things for those of you who have had the opportunity to review the study, talked about that most people rely on word of mouth or referrals. Uh, and that's really great. And it does build on where we see that um, cross-cultural kind of jumping from different organizations in our sector, which is really helpful. Uh, but we also make sure that we are widely distributing job postings so that we're encouraging a diversity of thought and opinions and process um, and that innovation that, that Lisa referenced as well uh, into the organization. Um, and that's, that's really essential. And the other thing that I just want to note um, that I think we all struggle with in terms of being able to multitask and have our job descriptions be blurry on the sides and, and all of the things that come uh, very naturally, I think, within, within the sector to the reality of, of our organizations is to really provide a realistic job preview. And uh, I was mentioning to both um, Diane and Lisa before we started the session a quote that I wanted to share with the, with the group. I had the opportunity to attend a session uh, a few months back. It was a morning breakfast session, not unlike this, about trying to say sane and manage priorities in an insane environment, which I'm sure everybody here can also relate to. And uh, there was, uh, it was a panel of, of uh, leaders uh, for across various industry sectors. And one of the women on the panel was an entrepreneur with a team of about 35. And she talked a lot about um, hiring for values and character and how she was actually involved in all the hiring that happens at her organization. And one of the things that she says to all the prospective candidates that they bring in is, you're regularly going to be overwhelmed in your job, and either that excites you or it doesn't. And if it doesn't, this isn't the place for you. And I think that with, um, uh, you know, th there's, there's a high unemployment rate right now, and you have a lot of people vying for positions. So when you bring candidates in, um, they're excited to be there, and they sort of hear what they want to hear sometimes out of, uh, you know, what the prospective position is going to be. And I've actually tried this quote out now in, in a few of the, the hiring committees that I've participated in, because I think it's also very real in our environment, and um, I, you, you sort of can't mince words there. So I think as much as you can share up front about what the reality of the role is going to be, while also making your organization see it, seem attractive and, and the role attractive, of course, course, um, I think the better off you're going to be in the, in the long run with the types of employees that you bring on. Interesting insights um, and, uh, and, and some things that really resonate with me. Uh, one of the things, um, Raina shared the, uh, the list of who's attending, and I know it's very cross-sectoral, so there's people from music, people from film, people from books, people from magazines. And one of the phenomena that, that, that emerged from the study and that I, I hear you talking a little bit about is that there is much more fluidity between the, the various disciplines. Um, I, I hear book people talking about video. I hear mu music people talking about doing print stuff. I wonder if we could just to sort of take a little thought on that. Lisa, do you want to, are you hiring from sort of non-book streams? Um, increasingly so. And if our book people, uh, and if, they're, if they are book people, then they, a lot of them are needing new skills. But um, I, I wrote it down and I will share it with you. You know, to me, beyond the supply and demand equation of certain types of jobs these days, I think it's a natural extension of the fact that for most forms of culture today, um, there's an opportunity for the content to exist in a lot of places mm -hmm. and on a lot of platforms, and the lines are blurring. Mm -hmm. So we try to look at things as content that can live in a lot of places or brands that can live in a lot of places. So for example, some of you may be familiar with a character called Scaredy Squirrel, one mm -hmm. of our best-selling uh, books, but it's not just books anymore. It's books, it's box sets, it's television. We're just turning our attention to merchandise and we're heading out on the streets to the advertising community in another couple of weeks for, uh, with the, the Twitter folks uh, for a Scaredy Squirrel Twitter Amplify 
uh, campaign that we'll be selling. So I think it's a natural extension uh, of where our industries are today. And for many of us in this room, you know, if we're not harnessing our business on other platforms or mediums, we're either missing opportunities to drive revenue or our customers are gonna go other places to get the content they want when they want it and where they want it. So I think, think it's integral to all of our opportunities for growth to look across our sectors and to be cross-pollinating either in a formal way by partnering or by hiring across the sectors. Mm -hmm. I would um, completely agree with that. I think there's immense pressure on the sector to stay relevant um, with changing technologies. Uh, TIFF is a perfect example of something that was on film that you could touch that's moved to you know, a real almost 100% digital realm, um, which really expands the types of competitors that we're looking at and trying to get people to come into our building to have an experience. And so it starts to broaden what we need to look for and the types of roles that we're hiring for in terms of providing uh, a really exceptional visitor experience in-house, um, as well as uh, putting out our content into different areas. And, and we've had to build out an internal content team, for example, where we're capturing you know, some of the live events that, that we put on that then you know, go to a YouTube channel and social media and just all of these things exploding at an exponential rate, at a faster rate probably than, you, than we can actually keep up with in terms of mm -hmm. teaching those uh, skills to people who are existing in the roles and then really figuring out and identifying what it is that we need to bring on. And increasingly, we've, we've seen an increase in um, more production and project management staff to actually help us manage um, some of these as well as in, in the digital areas. And so where we see um, not just around um, bringing on people within other sort of cultural industries, uh, we're actually increasingly competing in the private sector for talent, especially at the mid-career professional level where people have some of those established skills and experience. Even, and, and I mean that even on the soft skills side because of the level of people management that we're, we're putting them into in the organization. That's a really good segue into, into my next thought. We're, we're also looking at um, a workforce that has multiple generations in it at the same time, from the likes of me to some uh, to the millennials, uh, and that does create some interesting dynamic. Uh, and I wonder, actually, I know I know Sandy that TIFF is quite a young organization, mm -hmm. so I thought maybe I'd start with you to how do you manage that? Yes. Um, so we do have we have a lot of millennials uh, who who work uh, with us, and um, as I as I just referenced, um, one of our challenge points is really attracting that mid-career professional for a whole number of reasons. Um, we do employ a lot of um, new graduates or recent graduates um, from post-secondary. And uh, we also have a very, TIFF has a very hierarchical organization. So we have assistants reporting to coordinators, reporting to managers, reporting to directors, reporting to VPs. And that's even that line uh, is, quite, is quite young. Um, and uh, one of the things, that some of, part of the reason that, that that's been built that way um, is to support the business of the organization. But part of it has also been in response to trying to manage the expectations and some of the, maybe some of the stereotypes you hear about millennials of wanting to come into an organization and be real influencers in that organization and moving up the ladder very quickly um, in terms of scope of role and scope of authority that they have in the organization. And so I think um, beyond that, what a lot of organizations you know, have done that I've seen in the sector is you have people who excel very technically in their role. And so you want to keep them engaged and motivated and reward them. And so you promote them. 
And um, where we're challenged is actually helping to support then the soft skills growth that comes with increasing that level of scope and authority. And so what we've shifted to, started to shift to as a result of that is really looking at how we can grow people laterally. Um, I regularly have managers in my office, you know, when they're having active professional development and performance development uh, conversations with their staff who are wondering what's their next career step. And, you know, the person who is in the manager role has only been there for a year, so we're not ready. They're not going to have a position to go into. Is talking about how we can give them some movement in the out, outside of their role, either in special projects or committee participation or other professional development opportunities to make sure that we're still feeding that um, really great appetite for, for growth um, that we see. So trying to find ways that we can actually do that this way rather than, than this way and managing those expectations off the top. So we have tools in place like performance agreements, which we set at the beginning of the year to talk about what the outputs are for the year and how people are going to achieve them, um, as well as what people's professional development goals are and making sure that, that we're measuring that and measuring the success of those. Alyssa? Uh, very similar. Uh, two things particularly, the development side of things. We have mentorship programs throughout the mm -hmm. organization because in some cases it's not moving within our de department necessarily. Mm -hmm. It might be moving somewhere else within the larger organization. So mentorship programs, a lot of training and development. I mm -hmm. think if it's not now, it's at least, you, as you said, you're building the skills mm -hmm. um, that will equip them for when there is an opportunity. And I think, too, just giving them meaningful work and letting them do their job and not micromanaging them. I think, uh, you know, letting people do their thing is something that really jazzes them. Um, so if you can give them the job and uh, let them run with it, I think that's particularly motivating for younger people. Obviously, knowing, you know, what, um, what's expected of them. We, too, have very rigorous objective setting at the beginning of the year. And... We have um, role mandates as opposed to job descriptions. And that kind of says where your job starts and stops, where you may have full authority to make a decision, where you may, as a stakeholder, have influence on a decision, where you may have veto power. And I think particularly with job descriptions moving a lot these days, that helps to, within your purview, kind of give you a sense of, uh, am I supposed to be over here, over here, and where am I expected to add value and, and to contribute? We thought that the discussion of uh, multi-generational and, and the millennials was a good uh, segue into a wonderful little video that, uh, that Lisa has uh, based on uh, a book called The Most Magnificent Thing. Can I cue the video, please? From Ashley Spires, creator of the best-selling graphic novel series Binky the Space Cat, comes a charming picture book about a girl and her very best friend, who just happens to be a dog. The girl has a wonderful idea. She is going to make the most magnificent thing. She knows just how it will look. She knows just how it will work. All she has to do is make it. And she makes things all the time. Easy peasy. But making her magnificent thing is anything but easy. And after failing repeatedly, she quits in frustration. It's only when her loyal dog convinces her to take a break and a walk that she comes back with renewed enthusiasm and manages to get it just right. A wonderfully inspirational book by the author-illustrator of LARF and Small Saul, The Most Magnificent Thing is sure to fire up the imaginations of youngsters eager to make their own magnificent thing. We thought it really, really spoke to the, the need for, uh, in addition to hard skills, the ability to innovate, to create, to, uh, to do it again, to indeed fail. Uh, and uh, Lisa, it's your video. I'll say over to you. Sure. Thanks. Um, let's face it. Everybody in this room is trying to create something magnificent, right? That's where, why we're in the cultural industries. But beyond what um, Diane has mentioned, again, those are the skills that we're particularly looking for these days. Innovation, creativity. We're looking for ideas people, really, when you, th when you think about it. And it's also an example within our team uh, the marketing team had to learn to move to video as a, as a marketing uh, approach. Everyone expects video these days, and it's a shorthand for so many things, and so they had to learn to write scripts 
and uh, work with our production team. And uh, they've been very um, agile and creative and uh, you know, all those things that's described here in taking on that challenge to use video as a medium to move our business forward. Mm -hmm. Lisa, do you have any thoughts? Well, one of the things beyond the innovation that resonated with me watching that was actually the idea around critical thinking and how important that is uh, for employees to bring to the table. And I think um, we have this real balance between uh, wanting people to think creatively and strategically and be innovative, but the reality of the level of administration that we all have within our roles. So I don't think anyone in the cultural sector has really the luxury of people doing this one singular thing of a, of a specialty. Um, they all have some level of admin all the way up to, you know, the, the leadership table, I think. And um, I think on some of that admin side and even some of the creative side, you really want people to be solutions driven. So not bringing forward just one idea. We're actually looking for multiple ideas and to look at a problem and think critically about it and find creative solutions, not all of which are going to work. Um, but to, to really bring that to the table instead of asking, how do I do this? We want them to tell us. It's true. Even, even in the training field, we're looking at video as short videos, attention spans getting shorter. How do we, how do we impart mm -hmm. uh, you know, skill sets and tips about uh, how to improve your skill sets th through video? Um, the reality is that we don't pay as much as some other sectors. So in, in terms of motivating and retaining people, you've, you've both touched on it in various ways. Um, what else do we do? How, how do we remain competitive? We, we know that we attract people to the sector. They're interested in it intrinsically. They find it interesting. But how do we retain people going forward? Uh, I'll start with you, Sandy. Sure. Um, so I think we tried to build up as many opportunities for staff engagement as possible at TIFF for people to really connect with the end product. So all this work that we're asking them to do to really have the ability to see what it is that they're actually producing at the end. So, you know, for us specifically, we try to um, give staff uh, opportunities to get tickets to see our films, both on a year-round basis and during the festival, so that's one way. Um, we do look at flex time and, and flexible work weeks uh, so that we, what we tell people is we, we want you to get your job done. We don't care what time you're doing that at. And I think that helps, uh, uh, that helps allow people to have the flexibility of they're not a morning person, then they can come in at noon and work until 8 p.m. And if they are, they can start at 7 o'clock in the morning and leave a bit earlier. If they'd prefer to work quietly on the, on the weekends, they can do that. We are a, you know, 365-day-here operation. And so, you know, there have been some shifts that we've, that we've had to look at. And uh, that's taken some time to, to actually um, have that culture of flexibility. But that's, that's one of the things, the terms that we use to, to try to uh, engage people. We also try to put support systems in place um, for people to help address that sort of idea of burnout, I think, because people come in really passionate and um, and then you know sometimes the job starts starts to weigh on them so we have um, wellness activities that we focus on during the summer where we bring in nutritionists and give people opportunities to do yoga and things like that and we also try to leverage um, we, we do put a lot of emphasis on professional development in the organization and we try to leverage some internal subject matter experts on a number of different um, different topics like thinking creatively, having difficult conversations, brainstorms, and really encouraging people to have shared experiences. So um, those, are, those are a few of the things that, that we've built out to really try to um, keep people motivated and engaged and wanting to stay with us. And you, Lisa? Very, very similar things. A lot of training and development. We're very fortunate to have something called Chorus University um, that is dedicated dedicated programming it's about 300 different courses a year and in fact 
all of that KCP senior management team participated in one earlier this week on change management. <laughs> it was awesome. Um, so lots of training and development opportunities. Uh, also along the health and wellness, on Monday mornings there are big um, you know, baskets, buckets full of fruit that are laid out in each of the kitchens on each of the floors. Um, and then something else in the creative vein, because we have so many creative people working in the building, whether they're publishing people or animators or you know, television producers, um, is we have an art gallery on the third floor and we have seasonal art shows. Um, people have an opportunity to display what they've created and sometimes we sell them and we kick it off with a little wine and cheese party. So it's not very expensive, but it's a great time to remember that despite the hectic pace and all of the business metrics, that we are um, you know, a creative organization. Um, and on, also on the health and wellness, uh, the company facilitates having um, yoga and Pilates classes, uh, and also a boot camp class, which I don't do anymore, um, on site. They don't pay for it, so it's not a cost of the company. It just facilitates making it easy for you to take some time in your lunch hour and, uh, and work out. Um, th these are fantastic insights. Uh, and um, how, how, do we, how do we develop a more robust HR community across the cultural industries when we're dominated by the little guys, like my organization, uh, and we don't necessarily have access to the likes of you, Sandy, or the insights that a larger company brings. How, how, can, how can we do better going forward in sharing information uh, and, and, and getting best practices out there? Um, Lisa, come in. Well, I think this study is a great sort of template and framework on which to build and hopefully, you know, today can uh, spark the interest for folks to gather on a more regular basis mm -hmm. to share. And even Sandy and I were saying, you know, <laughs> come down for lunch because, yeah. you know, uh, I think it, it's, it's really important to be talking and some of the other uh, professional organizations, our friends from the ACP are here. And uh, certainly, if you, ha if you don't know work and culture, it's amazing. I send people there all the time. And lastly, um, there's an organization that our company belongs to that I frankly wasn't aware of and want to get on it too sweet. And I'll just share it with you. It um, has a, a strange name. It sprang out of what was the Canadian Human Resources planners, and it's now called the Strategic Capability Network. Um, and it's uh, for business leaders, uh, helps them achieve strength through people by providing uh, forums uh, and leading edge thinking. They have monthly events, speakers, and so on. And uh, it's people of uh, all business sizes, large and small, profit and not for profit. So that may be of interest for you to check out. It's, it's www.scnetwork. .ca. And when I went on the website, I found lots of things in about 10 minutes that I was really interested in learning more about. I'll, I'll really just echo what, what Lisa said and actually what Diane said in, in the beginning that, you know, this, this breakfast and the study, um, that there's a desire to continue the discussion and start to build a, a database. Um, and so I, I think... Uh, you know, those in, those in the sector, we all need to commit to be a bit better about sharing information and finding ways outside of just, you know, formal breakfasts like this to come together and talk about shared challenges and experiences and, and issues and what we're all working on. And, and, and then finding other formats that we can all buy into and participate. You know, one of the things that I was mentioning to Diane is one of the compensation surveys that's that's referenced in the uh, in the report is, you know, the Boland survey. And it's a survey specifically for the not-for-profit sector. So it does cover off more than just the cultural sector. But when we first started, there were far more cultural organizations that were participating, and they've dropped off. And so now the, the focus, which is probably less relevant for those of us in, in the room, are more around, uh, you know, health services and social services organizations with a few arts and culture uh, organizations peppered throughout. So if we can all carve out a little bit of time to just participate, the data that we're trying to collect is going to be that, more, that much more rich um, and informative.
And it is absolutely true. The more information that we can collect, um, even, even should we get the resources to do this to, uh, again, I would like more people to participate. Had very, very good participation from publishing and magazines, but a little less so from some of the other sectors. So just saying. Um, we're, uh, we're, we're going to, um, to do a little special thing. We have a draw. Uh, today, we want to leave some time too for questions from uh, from you, obviously, your chance to actually access some some expert advice. So each of us is going to draw a name, and Lisa has provided us with a copy of the most magnificent thing. So get ready, Sandy. Okay, away first. you go. All right, hold on. Let me mix them up really well. We're very fair. <laughs> uh, Diane Hall. There you go. <laughs> Natalia Woolridge. Fantastic. My turn. There we go. Congratulations. Sarah Drew. I think the other thing I'll just say is for so many of us, you know, we're so busy. What this book uh, really promotes is just stop, pause, take a walk around the block. Come back at it. You'll have new insights. You'll be yeah. able to see that much of what you have done has a lot of value, and it just needs to be reassembled. Uh, before I turn it over to you, I'm just going to ask uh, my two co-panelists if there's anything, anything that they would like to just add. We have you see Raina with her mm -hmm. signs at the back. We have a couple of minutes. Just. I I do think there's one thing, I realize it was it's around the non-salary benefits because I realized both Lisa and I touched on things that maybe out there you're thinking, well, there's probably a little bit of a cost attached to that and to that and to that. Um, one of the other things that we do that I think is actually a really easy win, and we've had a lot of success with it, is we have a program called uh, Kudos Cards, um, which we have a set of cards that staff can give to one another to thank them and say great job and some of those things. And we also have an awards program where we have a trophy called the Tippy that links to our strategic priorities, actually. And uh, we had a trophy design competition and things like that. So I think just as much as you can find opportunities to bring staff together and encourage them to recognize one another and find that recognition not just from top down is something that's also really helpful and doesn't cost anything, actually. And just building on that, it reminded me of a, um, a session that I went to recently where a woman said that she was finding that people were really averse to risk-taking. So she actually established an award for a big fail. So it was like big leap, hmm. big flop. <laughs> and it served two purposes. It served to um, acknowledge people who were taking risks and also provided the forum to say, okay, what was our learning from that? Because we are moving at such a pace that oftentimes we're not stopping to reflect and say, okay, what was the value in that, good or bad, and what should we build on and what should we not do anymore? Very good point. I mean, if we're not failing, we're not trying hard yep. enough. Okay, over to you. Your chance to, uh, to ask the experts. And one quadrant I really can't see is over there. So if you're, oh, sorry, over here, please. Am I supposed to stand or if I just sit? <laughs> you can sit, but please say your name. Oh, sorry. Sasha Borzma from Sticky Brain Studios and Centennial College. Uh, one of the things that come up when you're, and I'm from the interactive space, and one of the common issues that comes up is this need for intermediate talent. And it's, I'm assuming it's across all industries, but especially in the interactive space, we have our industry is growing faster than the labor can keep up with. Mm -hmm. So trying to find intermediate and senior talent is near impossible, and yet all the job postings are that. But then we have this huge bulge of, you know, quote-unquote juniors who have a collection of undergrad, postgrad, master's studies, but limited work experience right. who, you know, they're probably smart enough to do some of the tasks if you need an intermediate, but because they don't have that experience or background, it's really hard to really make that step when you're a small business of three people to, to make that investment and say, yes, I'm going to take this risk on this 26-year-old when I probably really need someone who's 34, um, but give this a shot. Do you have any advice for small businesses kind of doing this juggle of, of how do you make this determination? And at the same time, how would young people who are 26, 27 with the master's degrees or postgraduate certificates be able to sell themselves and say, you know what, I can do that job. I know you're looking for someone with three years or four years experience, but I can do that. Um, how, do, how, how do employers get comfort from 
this talent? Terrific question. I'm going to Sandy first and um, sure. I you know I think uh, one of the I think both small and large organizations do um, rely on. Um, internships and volunteer opportunities, which is probably not the answer that you're looking for in that. Um, but I think, uh, you know, uh, as much as you can um, highlight your portfolio and uh, make your resume and cover letter stand out, that's a big thing. Because I think we are all inundated with a really large volume of, of candidates that uh, we're, we're looking at. Um, but also, you know, looking at what, thinking outside of going for the big thing first, sometimes building out some of those smaller step experiences and seeing where some of those opportunities might be, at least in this market right now, are going to be ways to, to build some of that experience to, to help um, stand out. I think sometimes taking the chance on the younger people is a great opportunity and you have to be careful. Obviously, you don't want to parachute someone in, but mm -hmm. you obviously, um, they got to have the skills. So it's looking for someone that does provide those softer, mm -hmm. um, the soft skills that you're looking for that will be things like maturity at their age. You know, are they able to cope with this? Is there some training that I can give them while they're in this job to support them? Um, and looking for someone that has a lot of initiative and hopefully they've had enough real world or life or business experience that you can see, yeah, they can make things happen. So I don't know if that's helpful to you, but it, there is a big supply and demand challenge these yeah. days for sure. Yeah. Um, and just before I get the next question, uh, just from Working Culture's point of view, we've had a lot of really good experience mid-management with the mentoring programs. Mm -hmm. And even if you're a small organization and you don't feel you can do the mentoring internally, if you've got somebody promising, you might help them find an external mentor mm -hmm. that you think has the skill sets uh, and, and would, would possibly take them on. So. Uh, and we've also had good success with peer mentoring groups. So, you know, if there's some group that they can talk to that has that kind of exchange, just, just a thought. Question over here. There's the mic coming. Uh, oh, sorry, looking, um, looking at a, I'm Alana Wilcox from Coach House Books. Looking at a sea of junior applications for a position, you know, where they all have a Starbucks job and two internships. Sure. Um, what are some good interview techniques or favorite questions? Who'd like to take that? Do you want me to go first? Yeah, go ahead. <laughs> um, so uh, I think, again, if, if, uh, in terms of interview techniques, if we go back to one of the things that Lisa and I think we're both talking about and this idea of hiring for values, we, we stick outside of our, our process includes a phone interview but let's let's just forget about that for, for the moment when you're sitting in front of someone uh, we actually stick to behavioral interview questions and situational interview questions so identifying that realistic job preview and I think um, you know there's a lot of transferable skills um, especially when you're hiring for character out of people who are coming from the service industry um, because they've had to deal with um, probably you know, with customers, conflict resolution, um, teams. And so that's where we focus on, on some of our, um, that's where we focus some of our interview questions from the most junior to the most senior positions in, in our organization. And while I was talking, I was trying to think of a really good question that we, that we actually ask. Um, one of my favorite questions that, that we ask actually is, um, Tell me about a time when you made a mistake at work. How was, I, how was it identified and what's the resolution? And that's a good question because I think what you get to hear out of that is, you know, speaking to even Lisa's previous answer around level of maturity, how much experience people have had in taking accountability for their own mistakes and what level of mistakes and kind of authority they've, they've actually had in a position and coming up with a resolution. So it's sort of fascinating to hear what people's answers are, but also their thought process. Because sometimes you'll get people who say, I made this mistake, but it wasn't really my fault, right? And, and so then, then you, that starts to build a picture of, you know, of uh, the kind of experiences they have and the kind of person that they are. 
And if I can just comment, because uh, Sandy gave a, um, a, a, a workshop on, on HR practices that I attended recently, and one thing that I really liked that you said was, don't bother asking the question, what are your weaknesses? Oh, yeah. Because, of course, everybody says, I'm a perfectionist, yes. and you know, it's yeah. to, I'm learning to you know, go a little faster, but I'm just so concerned about details. Yeah, worst question ever. Worst question ever, which yeah. I thought was just great, because it's just basically a waste of time. A asking something far more direct was, was great. Yeah. Gentlemen here. Yes, hello, my name is Zifred, I'm a filmmaker, I'm a freelancer, and uh, I am a little bit horrified by, by what I'm hearing right now, because I, and a lot of people I know, don't have the same experience in life and work from what you're saying. Meaning, um, I know a lot of people who are 27, 26, and they would like to have a job, but just as you said, they're offered internships at 27, 26. They're considered not even juniors, they're considered interns. Uh, 20 years ago, at 18, you were considered a junior and you could start working. Now, you're considered an intern, sometimes until you're 35. And then suddenly you become 40 and you're given a job that is way outside of your skills because you never had a real job. So how do you deal with these people? And second question, how do you deal with people like me who want to change careers and actually go into a real job with all the skills we have. Let's say I'm a filmmaker, I'm a camera operator, I've been freelancing my whole life. I want to go into a TV station and become an employee as a camera operator. The answer is usually, oh sorry, you've been a freelancer for too long, there's no way you're going to fit in. How do you deal with those two things? So we've got two questions, one around internships, and I'll ask you both to address that first, perhaps. Yeah. Um, well, I, I have to say I'm a big fan of internships, and I know there's been a lot of controversy around it, but we have always paid for our interns and, and make sure that we give them a meaningful experience. I benefit enormously from an internship. I worked under Kevin Shea, the current chair of the OMDC, when he was head of marketing and regulatory affairs at Rogers. Um, so I think in a lot of cases, it's um, making sure before you take on an internship, you know that it's going to be worth your while. So your own due diligence. And uh, if it doesn't seem like it's going to be any more than photocopy and stapling, which for some people, that's, that's the first you know, piece of work they're going to have. And that's OK, too, if that's what they need. So uh, I hear the challenge of people doing internships. But if that's the only way they're going to get experience in that sector, that may be a way in for them. As for yourself, I think um, a lot of companies now are actually taking on freelancers for very specific work they need and then keeping them on, um, in part because once they see the output of the work that they've gotten that contributes to their business growth, they're able to make a business case for keeping that person on uh, full time. And, and as for moving as between, um, you know, it's really looking at your skills and reframing your uh, resume so that it talks about what's behind those camera operator skills that you can bring to the party. That's what I would offer. I agree with everything you just um, said, Lisa, particularly on the internship front. And I think um, same thing for TIFF. We provide our, our internships are not photocopying and stapling. They are meaningful educational experiences that give people real insight to roles and experiences um, for those roles, the only thing that I that I would probably add is, you know, um, from the report, you would have seen that there's, um, you know, the that most people are recruiting word of mouth and, and referrals. And so beyond the mentorship opportunities that Diana identified is actually before even getting to the interview process is maybe finding organizations and people within those organizations where you're looking to get into and identifying people you could have informational interviews with to get a real sense of what's behind the job description that they're posting and, the require, and their requirements and how you can be more marketable within that. And I'm going to have to stop you because you're not answering my question. You're actually turning it backwards. I'm not asking Same thing at all. 
Sure. So, well, so I think um, what I would say is that that we do, I do tons of informational interviews with people who who are looking to um, actually be a part of TIFF or looking to break into marketing and at all levels from people who are new graduates to people who are looking to make career shifts and talk about different ways to get involved with the with the organization. A lot of arts and culture organizations also have opportunities for volunteering, which if people can, while they're freelancing, um, find ways to do that. And that's that's a way to get a foot in the in the door. I think right now we're dealing with not and this isn't unique to our sector. There, uh, you know, Lisa mentioned there's a supply and demand issue. And so people, I think, need need to start thinking outside of um, just finding that lateral shift into an immediate intermediate level position, but finding other opportunities to get their foot in the door in the organization where they can have visibility and have active advocates um, for them into those roles. And I would say too, you know, as a leader, you know, one of my most important jobs is keeping tabs on talent. Mm-hmm. So first of all, from the succession planning point of view or the we call it, you know, if somebody wins the lottery scenario. For managers on up for sure and throughout most of the organization, I have a list in a drawer. You know, what, what am I going to do if XYZ leaves? And I've got three names beside it. And it's what's my short term? How am I going to fill that gap? And then what am I going to do longer term? And for the amount of time that it takes to do that, boy, is it a lifesaver when that person shows up at your desk and said, I've got another opportunity, you know? Um, it's not always that smooth. Don't uh, let me lead you astray on that. But at least if you've given some thought, um, you're going to be better off. And, and to your point about, yes, informational interviews, because I want to know what other talent's on mm-hmm. the street. I'm, I want to know who the vibrant, amazing talent is and who brings, may bring skills that I hadn't even thought of that could be helpful to our organization. So since I can't say enough about you know, keeping an eye on talent internally and externally. Mm-hmm. I'm going to take one more question, if I may. And I think I see somebody. Yes, there. <laughs> it's over here. Hi, uh, my name is Sarah Drew, and my organization is called Everyone Games. We teach skills development and technical, professional, and social skills to a neurodiverse community. Um, and my question is, I'd actually like to challenge the skills being on the bottom of your list and uh, knowing that there are extremely talented and skilled individuals that are losing out to jobs to people who might be less skilled because they impress during the typical interview process. So I'm wondering how you approach accessibility to opportunity. Yeah, and that was actually something I meant to pick up earlier is in terms of the questions uh, and, and the best uh, interview techniques. I think to your point, we always wanna assume that the person has the skills. If they're, if they're in the interview, we're confident they can do the job. Now we want to know that they can fit within the organization. So one of the things that we've taken to do recently is always provide a scenario and a problem for them to solve. Or, so if it's an editorial position, edit this piece. If it's a sales position, here's a pitch. You know, how are you going to pitch this, um, this book? Um, and so on. And give them a problem so that we can make sure that the skills that we're assuming they have, that they, they can actually translate it. So it's not that skills don't matter. Um, if you're there, we know you've got the skills. Mm-hmm. And same, I, I said push aside the phone interview for a moment when I answered the question before about the behavioral and situational interview questions. But we ask all our hiring managers to go through a phone interview process with a larger pool of candidates where the focus is more on those technical skills and requirements where we shift that into the in-person interview. We touch on it as well, and we have the situational questions where we're seeing how people would deal with a different scenario based on the skills that they have. Um, but but we're definitely addressing that. We also try to make sure, um, I, I mentioned earlier about diversity of thought and opinions, that we actually are trying to um, extend our reach into different networks and different, you know, areas across Toronto, across Ontario, across the country, um, to make sure that we're reaching all the qualified candidates that we can. This has been a terrific discussion, and uh, and I, I certainly hope it is a, a discussion to be continued. I just wanted to point out the slides that we have up here are just the appendices for the report. Uh, Lisa was particularly taken with them, and I said, okay, let's let's stick them up as slides. But they're in the report, so and there's a there's a couple of them that that go on. Just really sources of information as much as anything, and and uh, interview insights. 
Um, and uh, I want to thank you all for coming out for breakfast uh, and uh, listening to us and, and asking great questions. And thank you for attending. And I particularly want to thank my two panelists, Sandy Lee and, uh, and Lisa Lyons-Johnston. And thank you to the OMDC for the support of the, of the program. Yay!